Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. Today's Rattlebag, we talk to Laurie Anderson, dubbed America's Multimediatrix by Wired magazine. The Chicago-born Anderson has been working since the 1970s as a performance artist, visual artist, musician, poet and writer. She wandered into the mainstream of popular culture in the early 1980s with the song Oh Superman and much more recently performed her own adaptation of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. She currently lives in New York with her partner Lou Reed. Laurie Anderson, the record of the time at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, is the first large-scale exhibition in Ireland of Anderson's work. Comprising over 80 pieces, it focuses on sound in the art of Laurie Anderson and includes installation, audio, video and art objects. The show spans her career from the 1970s to her most recent piece in 2002. Oh yes, yes, oh yes, can't remember much now, twill ye dee, twill ye dumb, my hindsight just isn't what it used to be, I keep telling my problems to people I don't even know, I'm a stranger in your town, like a meatball in a wine glass, my heart, my heart, my heart was broken. What can I say? Today I'm too depressed to do anything at all. I talk for myself and other strangers. Of shipwrecks. Palm trees. Beaches littered with rotten coconuts. Deaf ears doesn't even begin to describe the profound silence between them. Oh yes. Yes. Oh yes. So this, this started out a couple of years ago in Lyon. It's called The Record of the Time. And it's Sound in the Work of Laurie Anderson is the subtitle. Okay, so it has a lot of instruments that I've designed and different ways to hear sound. Um, there's something called a hearing, which is a little earring that I designed with a little chip in it that sings to you. There's a phonograph, which is a 45 record on a mounted on the body of a violin. There's a tapo violin from 1977. There's a talking pillow. There's a talking pillow. There's a talking table. But the thing I noticed the most about this show is that it's complete, and that's, it's all about the body. It's everything about the body, and I've n- no one has ever mentioned that about my work in the past, you know, that it's, it's about so much about the senses and how you, you take things in. How, how is it about the body? Well, um, I just noticed this in, when I was trying to make a um, little fragments of language that would drift through, and I still am going down to write a few more of these little pieces of text on the wall, because I think they kind of help as little hooks to drag you through. All of these pieces of text were about how we hear and see, and the first one, there's an introductory room that has 
a very old uh, thing called Duets on Ice, which was playing a violin with a uh, speaker inside it, duets with live and pre-recorded music. And the timing mechanism, because it was an endless loop, was a pair of ice skates, which I wore with their plates, frozen into blocks of ice. So when the ice melted, the concert was over anyway. Because um, you fell flat. Well, I started to wobble. I, you know, I didn't exactly fall on my face, literally, you know. And um, and then in the other room, there's this piece called the handphone table, which you listen to through bone conduction by putting your elbows on a table, and your ears become kind of headphones, really. Uh, sound comes rumbling up through your bones. So I decided to start the show with a question, and that was um, at the entrance to those two rooms that, that have a lot of that kind of early work, um, it was who's in me like a light, a bell, is the question. And it does begin to sort of say, well, what's, what's in me and what's outside? The next, um, then there are a series of kind of attempted answers at that question, you know. And I, one of the things in looking at this show that's made me realize is that, I, that I'm actually much more, let's say, porous than I used to think I was. For example, uh, I just finished a film that I'm going to be showing in Japan, and we did some uh, a lot of work with um, translating some of the stories into Japanese. And that's really when you figure out what you're about, when you have to put it into another language. Because English, you, it's so slanted, it's so shady and fancy. You know, you can say one thing and it means ten. And when you're in Japan, you know, they translate in Japanese, they go, well, pick which of the ten would you like? And you go, well, I want all ten. You know, and no, it has to be one. It's quite precise, sharp little, you know, sharp things. So, for example, you know, I'm there. I wanted to translate this little story about revenge, a, a very angry God, this whole kind of thing, and justice. And they say, well, you have to understand, when you say justice, we say harmony. And when you say individual rights, we say individual responsibilities. I'm thinking, okay, that's a pretty enormous difference right there. Because we're, you know, we got that from the Greeks, you know, egos and heroes, and it's all me, 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 me. So, okay, so then um, there's an argument in the production teams, the Americans and the Japanese. And they would not say, Dave is angry. They would say, there is anger in this room. And I'm thinking, you know, they're right. It's stuff is more contagious than we think. You know, it moves from me to you to over there. And, and, it, the, and it's not so much about this fiction of, like, the self that's propped up and just going through all of these motions. We're, we're more fluid. And, I, and that's something that I've really learned. So inside and outside are a big thing in this exhibition. As is politics, in a way, too. It has leaked in in a way that I, I hadn't quite predicted at all. Has your perspective on politics changed? Your studio, I think, is only a couple of blocks away from what was the World Trade Center, so you would have been closer to the, the thing that has dominated the politics of the last three years. Yeah, security is, or ideas of security have certainly dominated and and but the thing about that is that um, in the United States uh, wars are sold as serial events really 
so that you know the graphics for the Gulf War don't really match the graphics for the next war that we're going to be doing. So you think, wow, these are like a lot of different wars. And in fact, you know, one of the things about this is in September of 2001, I was on tour doing some songs that I hadn't sung for a long time. And one was uh, Oh Superman, which was had some lines in it about uh, some planes, their American planes, smoking or non-smoking. And, you know, there was these, these kind of accident, big accidents. And, and this was a song that I wrote during the Iran-Contra affair, which was a, a situation in which there was um, a huge amount of shame uh, attached to it for the United States. And it was very similar to recent events in, in Iraq and situations with uh, prisons and torture and so on. And so people are saying, wow, you know, so prescient. And, you know, I kept saying, you know, this is the same conflict. You know, it, it's just that it, it's, people don't think of it as, as one thing. You know, this is like the world of Islam and the Western world. They're confronting each other. And I don't think people in the United States have a big picture in that way of, of struggle and conflict, that they don't see it connected. So they're kind of thinking, well, this is a new thing. In fact, that type of concern about security has really been building for the, many of the same reasons. And um, But I think it, it definitely was a, a huge shock for New Yorkers um, to realize that uh, they could come right into your town. And I'm sure you'd, you'd feel the same in Dublin if, you know, there they were right downtown downtown and they just decided to take a few thousand people out whoa you know it was for us of course being so isolated in many ways that was a, a door that opened and will never be closed it was the end absolutely the end and, the, and a real cold bath of, you know wake up into the 21st century where you know it's all everything is quite different Hello? 
anybody home? Well, you don't know me. But I know you. And I'm gonna sing. To give to you. exhibition will see a lot of violins, a lot of different kind of violins which have been changed by you, which have been developed by you to do lots of different things. When you began, the image of you is of a woman standing on a stage with a violin. You played the violin from a very early age, but I think at some point you decided that you weren't going to be, you weren't good enough to be a classical violinist. Given what you've been doing to the violin, in the years since, have you been taking revenge on the classical violin because because you realised that you you know you weren't going to be uh, a classical violinist? Well, revenge on a piece of wood is hard, <laughs> you know, but it can be done. So I mean, the my first book that involved this was how to build your own Stradivarius, and I started with the bow, and the bow that I carved was. Oh, I had no flexibility whatsoever. It was the stiffest thing I'd ever seen. I gave up pretty quick. Let's see, revenge is part of it, I think. Uh, but um, like usually happens with revenge, or is a big part of that is fascination and love. And so a lot of the things I find myself playing now have been very... They sound like electronic music, but they're really 19th century romantic violin pieces hopped up, you know, because that's what I made me cry as a kid and made me want to be playing that instrument. It opened up a world of infinite, you know, possibility and emotion and sadness. And for me, a kid in the Midwest, playing those pieces made me feel like I could feel a lot of different types of things. And of course, when you realize you're not really good enough to uh, play them really well, that it's quite a disappointment. I told myself I, I was going to stop so I could learn physics in German. Um, I still don't know any physics in German, uh, but I guess you know there's always uh, night school. I guess I don't know. Welcome back. You're listening to Rattlebag, where we're talking to artist Laurie Anderson about the record of the time, a retrospective of her work at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and about the span of her career. I spent some time in California in the fall, looking for a quiet place to live. I finally found what seemed to be the perfect apartment. But the night after I moved in, 
I heard a tremendous pounding sound. As it turned out, I had moved in right above a Hawaiian hollow log drum school. Every other night, it was converted into a hula school with a live band of six Hawaiian guitars. I decided to soundproof my place, but I didn't hang the door very well, and all the sounds kept drifting in. About this time, like a lot of New Yorkers who find themselves on the West Coast, I got interested in various aspects of California's version of the occult. We would sit around at night while the Santa Ana winds howled outside and asked questions to the Ouija board. I found out a lot of information on my past 9,361 human lives on this planet. My first life was as a raccoon. And then you were a cow. And then you were a bird. And then you were a hat. Spelled Luigi. We said, a hat? We couldn't figure it out. Finally, we guessed that the feathers from the bird had been made into a hat. Is this true? Yes. Spelled Ouija. Hat counts as half life. And then? Hundreds and hundreds of rabbis. Now this is apparently my first life as a woman, which should explain quite a few things. Eventually though, the Ouija's written words seem to take on a personality, a kind of a voice. Finally, we began to ask the board if the Ouija would be willing to appear to us in some other form. Forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. The Ouija seemed like it was about to crash. Please, please, what can we do? We were nagging it now. So you will show yourself to us in some other manifestation. You should lurk. You should L-U-R-K. Lurk. Now I never really figured out how to lurk in my own place even though it was only a rented place. But I did find myself looking over my shoulder a lot, and every sound that drifted in seemed to be a version of this phantom voice whispering in a code that I could never crack. Do you primarily see yourself as a storyteller? Primarily, I don't think about things like that. Um, and cause, because I'm doing one thing completely different from the 
day before. I'm, I'm not trying to um, put myself into categories. In fact, I'm trying to like run away from that kind of thing completely. By that I mean like always evaluating stuff, you know. Part of it has been working at NASA, like um, the last two years I've been this artist-in-residence at NASA, their first artist-in-residence, which is a very, very strange gig. And they... Um, in case anyone doesn't know what NASA is, the National uh, Aeronautic and Space Administration. So yes. it's basically the people, sent, the people who sent the guys to the moon. Supposedly did. Oh, yeah. you, you, yeah. You, you're a conspiracy theorist, are you? I, Capricorn one. I, I sympathize with their doubts, you know. <laughs> but, um, no, I think we were there. Probably, and, and I'm fumbling along in the dark because I don't really know what I'm looking for. A good story, maybe sometimes, but my storytelling method in the past has been kind of consistent. It's a short story with a slightly unusual angle, a punchline, and it fits into four kind of themes that are there linked. And recently I've been trying to break that up a bit because it seems a little stifling. And also because my own life story, the one that you tell yourself about, oh, in the future I'll do this and that and then I'll go there and do that, started kind of breaking down. And the things that I thought I wanted and that I was really going towards, I no longer really cared about. You know, it's a situation like, you, you know, they give you that prize and you go, that's nice, and you go, but so what? <laughs> you know? And all the little lures that you use to bring yourself into the future, to coax yourself along the way, you know, the carrot to your donkey. You know, my donkey died. He, didn't, he just kind of went, I'm not moving another step. I don't believe your stories about your life anymore. So is, is, is your life, is your professional life, about keeping yourself engaged, keeping yourself interested? Yes, but it's also about escaping my own little stories and also trying to not know very much about where I'm going. Now, in NASA, I ran into a lot of researchers who had that same problem, who were working on, the, on a combination of hunch and intuition, and also then just trying to use your senses, trying to make sure that you were aware enough so that when your hunch looked silly, that you could really change directions and go, oh, it's over there. And on their side, you have Einstein saying, He's rejecting some of his greatest theories. Why? Because they weren't beautiful. You're thinking, what's he looking for then? Symmetry? Does it have to balance? Does it have to be a beginning, middle, and end? Very neat little arrangement of narrative. I mean, our Western ideas about what balances uh, beautiful left or beautiful right, it's all in balance, in harmony, are to the eyes of the Chinese or the Japanese really boring. It's like, they love symmetry. Moon and June, it has to rhyme. Left looks like right. Mirror image, wow, that's fantastic. You know, they think that's absolutely mind-numbingly boring, symmetry. I just don't want to try to jam things into, oh, that's not beautiful because it's asymmetrical, you know, or that's not a story because it doesn't have an end. Tell me, tell me where you've gone with, or where you are going with, or where you're hoping to go with the with the NASA gig. Right now, I'm have a, a a solo show that's about that NASA gig, which started out one day when I was in my studio, 
get this call and they go this is some guy's voice says um, I'm from NASA and uh, we'd like you to be the first artist in residence here and I said you're not from NASA you know, <laughs> you know you're I from thought, National Lampoon yeah come on <laughs> you're really pulling my leg out he called again I called them and it turned out that he was so I thought wow you know what a great chance, because who gets to be the first of anything? I said, well, what does an artist in residence do? And they said, well, we don't know. What do you, what do you think they should do? I was like, uh-oh, wide open field. This is great. So I just, this performance that I'm doing now uh, is called The End of the Moon, and it's the story of how that worked and how I tried to invent what to do when there was no, you know, um, program. So... It's about going to Hubble, the people who run the space telescope in from Maryland, and Mission Control in Houston, and the Jet Propulsion Lab at Pasadena, and Ames, where they're doing a lot of nanotechnology. And this is stuff like this already. Giant art projects. They're building a stairway to outer space out of nanotubes. So they're growing. These are electronics that grow. Biological electronics. Just Jack and the Beanstalk stuff, like a growing staircase to the moon. Led Zeppelin were right, stairway to heaven. That's another jump, <laughs> whether heaven is there or not. You know, according to some of the color, uh, colorization that they do at Hubble, you would get the idea that it might be something like heaven, because they add a lot of pink and aqua to images that are, we don't know what color. So they're taking pictures of these sites, huge cumulus-like cloud formations in the nether worlds of space, and they look like Walt Disney. They look like a Tiepolo painting. They look gorgeous. They look like heaven. And, okay, we all know that photograph. you can change a photograph to look like anything. You can make your gloomy, horrible Christmas look like everyone was having a whole lot of fun. You know, you can change the pallor to, like, rosy cheeks. You can do anything, and they do anything at Hubble, I'll tell you. They've made this look like like a very heavenly place. Do I believe in heaven not as a place with pink light, you know? And, okay, religion in many ways is about explaining time. In, in many ways, it's more about that than it, where did we come from? Where are we going? You know, what is it? What is this place? Outer space in the United States is seen exclusively as the future. It's how are we going to get to Mars? How fast can we go? It's not about the ancient, vast place that we live in that's unimaginably old. It's not about that. We don't care about that over and gone. I mean, it's a very Buddhist attitude in a way, in the sense that Buddhists don't. Have, they have zero interest in ontology, where we come from, you know. In The End of the Moon, which has a lot to do with, with some of the gloomier aspects of, of space research and so, and looking at the future, but it, but it uses space as a kind of diagram because it's, um, since it is future-oriented, it, it tells you a lot about people's aspirations and sense of direction. So, like when I was a kid, this was the beginning of the space race, and Kennedy, JFK, made what was basically a military 
extremely competitive situation. He he romanticized it, and you know we were going to the stars, and we were, we were going to like really step on it like technologically, and we, we would really we would, and he he made it so glamorous as he did everything, you know. So instead of thinking of it as just sheer competition and drudgery, you know, we were able to think of it as something to aspire to. Now it's quite a different situation with, uh, I think, people's ideas about space are considerably less romantic. But, you know, one of the things I've loved about doing that is meeting people that I would never meet in my world, which is the art world and so on. And we all live in our own little tiny, tiny worlds, and we, and we have all of these, I think, rather rigid rules for what's supposed to go on in those worlds. It's supposed to look like this or sound like this, and you think, wait a second, I can't stand it. And pop music, I'm just saying, like has those rules, or the art world has those rules, or science has those rules. You know, and they all keep you in a small place instead of out in the big one. associated with technology. Uh, you use, you make great use of technology. You're not about technology. But what difference has the internet made in the last, say, 10 years or so to what you do, to the possibilities of what you do? The net's super handy. I mean, I'm really glad it's there. Um, my efforts to get away from it are, are... I'm really trying, though, because when you're surfing around on the net, you think, wow, I'm really, I am tapped in now. You know, you're tapped into like a very small rectangle and some very crummy graphics. That makes me want to shut down, walk out the door, and see actual scale, you know. And a lot of the instruments that I built for this show in the record of the time are attempts to... Um, swing your body into the instrument like you do with a saxophone or a violin. I mean, so one of the instruments is called the um, talking stick, and it's like, it was designed as part of a, a piece I did a few years ago called uh, Songs and Stories from Moby Dick, mm-hmm. and I was designing instruments for people to use in a big, expressive way so that their bodies are really involved. It's a digital instrument. It's kind of a scratching instrument. Uh, because I find, you know, like, Watching, if you're at a, at a show, you know, people are playing their laptops or keyboards. I mean, it's, 
it's let's face it, it's pretty dull. You know, it's kind of like watching people iron. You know, they're it's like they're looking at a screen. Wow, and they're tapping their fingers. Wow, you know, I like like body stuff. You know, and I love watching people like play saxophone. I think that's really really sexy. And and you hear that in the music. You hear it swinging. It's swinging in a way that it doesn't when you're t- when you're typing. You know. So that's one of the things that I, I've really tried to do with. You'll you'll notice like a lot of these instruments are more like portable and, um, of course, they're all pinned to the walls like dead butterflies. You know, it's a strange show. You know, because it's we've automated some of the instruments. We made little machines so that they'll play, and automatically. And of course, that's not what they were made to do. So it's a kind of funny combination of things. Some of them actually look really like um, visual art objects as well. So it's, they're in this kind of weird no man's land of multiple use things, as is most of my work. You know, it's, it's, it has, it, I'm jumping around a lot. You mentioned Moby Dick, uh, and you also used the word ob- obsession. Are you interested in obsession? Are you in any sense obsessed with with obsession, because what the story of Moby Dick is all about is one person's obsession. And it's not the captain's, of course, it's Herman's. And um, mm. he added that captain later, the second draft. It wasn't even in the first draft. Can you imagine? He brings his story to the editor, and the editor goes, it's basically guys go fishing. The Reader's Digest version of, of Moby Dick, well, guys go fishing. Well, without the captain, you know, mm. it is a lot of information about this and that. And, and you know, you can imagine this guy going, you know, maybe you need a kind of like, you know, I don't know, crazy captain, something like that. Something to like move the story along. Uh, I read this book five times. It's a pretty weird one. I mean, he's, this guy is in the beginning, the first few pages, it's, you know, he's kind of, well, what should I do? You know, maybe, you know what? I think I'm going to go fishing, I'm going to go to sea, but how and how should I go? If I go like as a just a regular maid, I'm going to be swabbing decks, I don't really like to be bossed around. Um, I could go as a captain, I don't know if they're really going to promote me that quickly. Uh, I know I'm going to go as a cook, because you know, who doesn't like a really great broiled chicken? The Egyptians did, you could see from their giant, you know, the mummies of... Um, Roasted river horse and um, phoenix in their giant bakehouses, the pyramids. This is page three. You're going, I love this guy, <laughs> master of the jump cut, you know. And so I'm reading this thing. A friend comes by and he says, I have something for you. And I said, and Next day he shows up with a huge box. What is it? Melville's Bible, the one he got two weeks before he wrote Moby Dick. And this guy had gotten it filled with pencil. Uh, notes. His marriage was, let's say, less than ideal. His wife had gone through the Bible and erased them all. My friend bought this Bible for a lot, a lot, a lot of money at Sotheby's, and then he took it to the FBI and said, um, can you tell me what was written here, what's been erased? And they said, yeah, you know, if, if it had been written 150 years, uh, 100 years ago, yes, but 150, no can't tell you anymore. So I'm looking through with a magnifying glass, frantic for, you know, where's any mention of Leviathan or whales or something, and I found it. 
with squiggles all around it in Isaiah. And he's talking about, and this something piercing serpent shall, something in the giant sea. And I'm thinking, ah, serpent. He's talking about the whale. And I thought, that's it. The whale is the snake and the ocean is his garden where he's working out good and evil. You know, what is an obsession? Trouble is, I'm thinking, um, it was creepy having his Bible in my house, living fairly near where he used to, to live. Once his whole life crumbled after he wrote this novel that nobody bought, he kind of re slunk off and became a kind of customs inspector and died in unknown. So I felt like he was haunting my house. I thought, you know, this guy's going to come and kill me. <laughs> I mean, this book does not need to be a multimedia show, and he knows it. So, you know, I would never do that again with someone else's writing, I'll tell you that, because that's like agony. You think, I'll never be able to represent him correctly, and there's such a responsibility, and it was crushing. So I'm just going to write my own stuff, you know. I was like, interpretation wasn't really my thing. You've got some technology to go and sort out, uh, so we better let you go. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's been fun. Laurie Anderson, the record of the time, continues at the Irish Museum of Modern Art until the end of April. Today's programme was produced by Kevin Brew. That's it from Rattlebag until Monday from all of us. Bye-bye. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. 